Good morning. It's good to see everyone. And uh, welcome to Line by Line as we are engaged in an ongoing exposition in the Gospel of John, working through word by word, line by line. We arrive today at chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, verse 21. But before we turn to the text, let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you give us in the midst of everything the opportunity to gather together like this and to turn to your word. Father, we do so because we're so drawn to your word. And that is because we're so drawn to you. Father, you have drawn us by your love. You have drawn us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You, in Christ, hold us to yourself. Father, we pray that you will plant your word deeply in our lives and hearts that it will produce a massive increase to your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when last we were together looking at the Gospel of John chapter 13, we, we saw that remarkable passage about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, a shocking passage that uh, has been kind of domesticated in our imaginations because we know that Jesus did it, and uh, we know that Jesus did it on the way to the cross, but the events that come after, the salvation events of, uh, of Jesus' arrest and, uh, and scourging, His, uh, of course, crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection, th- th- those all loom so large, and rightly so, in our theological imagination. But the washing of the feet is, is one of those events that begins the, uh, the entire sequence which is headed towards the cross and the empty tomb. And it, it sets up something else, and, and that is Jesus had said, you'll recall, a, as He was washing the feet of the disciples, he said, he said, if I don't do this for you, you have no part in Me. Now, that, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? At this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, roughly three years into the public ministry of Jesus, you would think that the disciples would know each other so well uh, because they've been together all the time uh, with Jesus all this time. And, and uh, you would think that Jesus would know them so well. Well, actually, we've already been told numerous times in the Gospel of John, particularly in John chapter 6, and, uh, and then already in the passage we saw earlier in the verses of John 13, Jesus knows who it is who will betray Him. Indeed, in John 6 or so, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray Him. But Jesus is, is omniscient, and the disciples are not, amazingly not. But this is all a part of God's sovereign plan for the sequence that will bring Christ to the cross and even before the cross, lead to his arrest, all a part of God's plan. But this is not clear to the disciples at all. That, that, that in all four of the Gospels is, is apparent. The, the disciples have not caught on, and this is why Jesus keeps telling them things like, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. And, and now, of course, he's saying that his hour has, has come. It's, uh, it's approaching very fast. And uh, and Jesus will tell them things like, you don't understand this now, but you will understand it later. And we saw that just even earlier in chapter 13. In the last verses we considered when we were together last, and in particular, uh, 
Look at verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So this would be a confirming sign. Jesus told them things that puzzled them when he, he spoke of, of uh, actually being betrayed and quoted the psalm. And, and he, he said this, and it's clear the disciples were troubled by it but didn't, didn't understand it. But then that last verse of that paragraph, chapter 13, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And as we saw, going all the way back to the prologue to the Gospel of John, this, this verb receives, but whoever received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Just, you look at that and you say, it, it, and he came into his own, and his own received him not. So the distinction in humanity here is between those who received him and those who did not receive him. And then Jesus says, if they received him, they will receive them. And so you have this dichotomy already here, and it's, it's so abundantly clear in the Gospel of John between those who are his and those who are the world. And that will become so clear in the high priestly prayer in John 17 that will follow. Uh, but, uh, but here he's talking about, he's talking about the events that are right before them. And, and of course, we understand that the betrayal is right before us. But we know that because we have the New Testament. We know that because we've read this passage so many times. We know that, but the disciples did not know that, or at least they did not understand that. And, and what's interesting is they're about not to understand more than they didn't understand before, until all of a sudden they understand everything clearly. Let's begin at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, being troubled in spirit is a very interesting formulation, and you'll recall it from the Psalms. In the Davidic Psalms, David will often talk about his spirit being troubled. Why is my spirit troubled within me? Now, what does this mean? Uh, what is this troubled spirit? The Yiddish word is sidrus. It's this, uh, it's, this, it's this troubling, this unrest within us. It's... Uh, it's something we all know, isn't it? I mean, we, 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 we all know what this is. It's one thing to be troubled about external issues. It's one thing to know that the world's full of trouble. It's another thing to feel troubled. You're just, you're just not, you're not safe and secure, and you're not happy, and you're not, you're not settled in your heart. An unsettled heart is, it could be a sign of many things. It could be a sign of danger. It could be a sign of of uh, moral quandary. It can be a sign of some kind of relational problem. It can be a sign of something deeper. And Jesus is not saying here, you know, I've got, a, I've got a problem. He's saying I'm troubled in my spirit. I, th I think that's a sweet way to put it, and, and it's instructive to us in that this is a spiritual issue. It, a lot of what troubles us when we're troubled is actually a spiritual issue. It's not something 
has to do merely with our relationships on earth or our job or our calling or our kids or our parents or anything. It has to do with our relationship to God. And that, that, that should be the most unsettling unsettlement. The most important reason for a troubled heart. But Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Now, why, why would Jesus be troubled? Because Jesus is the one who knows. He, he knows what is about to happen. He knows why he has come. As he will speak in John 17 in particular, he knows He knows who are his and who is not. So why is he so troubled? Well, the betrayal does not get the attention and the sequence of salvation history it should. We speak of Judas and we speak of his betrayal, but I think especially as we think of the events looming and we think of other people from Pontius Pilate to the disciples themselves and Judas kind of all of a sudden recedes into the background. The New Testament wants us to understand two things about Judas. Number one, he is fully responsible for his betrayal. Number two, like Pharaoh, he is living out a part to which God designated him and simultaneously he has given himself. The word betrayal hardly seems adequate for what we're talking about that Judas will do, and and we'll look at it closely. But just recognize that at this point, the sequence is just beginning. We've been told back in John chapter 6, he knew one would betray him. And now we understand that Jesus is troubled in his spirit because that's exactly what he says. He says, one of you will betray me. And, And that makes it much more intimate because it's one of you. This is one of the twelve. In fact, this accusation is so astounding that it's clear that 11 of the 12 don't understand it at all. Let's go ahead and read through the paragraph a bit more. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because uh, Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So Jesus says, as they are reclining to eat, Troubled in his spirit, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
Now just look at what's so amazing that follows. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Betray how? No doubt every one of them had let Jesus down at some point. And no doubt every one of them had been corrected by Jesus at some point. No doubt they had each learned in the three years of the intimacy of being together a lot about one another. But they had not perceived anything to the extent that when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they all went, well, it's going to be Judas. No! I mean, I'm astounded by that. I want to be honest. I find that, I find that incredible. I, it seems to me that if you were together all this time in the intimacy of being a disciple of Jesus for a matter of at least something like three years, you, you'd, you'd have some clue. Doesn't this kind of worry you about the church? I mean, who are you sitting with? Who are, who are you fellow members with in a church? What, what kind of assurance do you have? What kind of assurance do I have in you and you have in me? What, is, what does this mean? How could it be that Jesus could say, one of you will betray me, and 11 of the 12 have no clue what he's talking about? Then what follows is, from a literary standpoint, even more fascinating. And it's, it's one of these passages that the average the average Christian just doesn't even have in his or her imagination at all. Or if they remember it, they remember only the fact that Jesus said, one will betray me, and then of course Jesus did what you must do, Judas did what you must do, do quickly. But, but no, no, there's something phenomenally fascinating in what's going to happen here. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Well, we do know that among the disciples there were the power three. Peter, James, and John. Think of the transfiguration. So you've got Peter as in Matthew chapter 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. His name changed from Simon to Peter. Peter's leadership is clear in so many ways, but not a leadership that sets him fundamentally apart from the other disciples. And then you have the sons of thunder, James and John, and uh, we, we have much to remember about them. But it's John of the sons of thunder who is the beloved disciple. And what's fascinating is that from my perspective, if, if I'm thinking about the Gospel of John, and I'm John, and I refer to myself as the beloved disciple, it doesn't look like humility, but actually for John it was humility. He's not using his own name. He's referring him to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he does that twice, at least in, in, you can think of immediately, and, uh, and these two texts are going to get tied together in just a moment. The other would be John 20. But he refers to himself this way, and then he's referred to in the, in the, by others as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he obviously loved all of them, and uh, he loves all of us. But there was an intimacy between Jesus and John that is 
explained in the text by the fact that Jesus had this unique love for John. Now, that, that implies really close intimacy, and, and that's made clear in the text. He's reclining at the, the bosom of Jesus. Now, just think about Luke chapter 16, in the bosom of Abraham. What, what does that mean? That's hospitality in the, in the, uh, in the Jewish context, and, and, and frankly, throughout much of the Middle East at that time. People didn't sit at a table for a meal. They, they didn't have tables. Or if they had tables, they were for the preparation of the food, not for the serving of the food. The serving of the food would have been, depending on one's wealth and status, uh, on the floor. But the floor, just uh, if you've ever had a picture inside a Bedouin tent, some of them are better than the presidential suite at the Hyatt Regency. You've got these beautiful carpets and these massive cushions, and it, but you're, you're low, and the, the food is served in the middle and uh, you, you sit or recline in a certain sense. But you, you know who's got the seat of honor because it's the one who's closest to the chest, uh, to the heart of the host. Jesus is the host here, and it's John who's closest to him, so close that he can recline against him, which is uh, just a, a, a part of how people ate. And eating is an event. This is not just uh, you know, sitting down for a snack and we're going to finish this and get on. This is, th- this is a feast. And uh, this uh, is best understood as the Passover. So that th- this is a particularly ceremonial meal that they're sharing. It's a very, very, very long, long uh, account that we have here in John. But this is, uh, this is most likely the very night of the Passover, and this is the feast, and John's in his privileged position next to Jesus. But he's not privileged about knowing about whom Jesus is speaking to the extent that Simon Peter motions to him to ask Jesus, can't you see it? I mean, aren't you astounded by how human communication and, and the context of this, uh, this intimate meal is just exactly what we can see today? We, I mean, you can, you can see this. You know, I was one of four siblings, three boys and a girl. And a lot of what we had to do in figuring out our parents was nonverbal, you know. Uh, and it, you know, you, I was the big brother, you go figure it out. Uh, you, you, but the motioning, here in, uh, in John 13, this little detail, uh, what, what, what does this mean? Is this Francis Ford Coppola? Is this a Scorsese film? Uh, you know, this is, are, is, is, this, is this plot being worked out? Sometime back during the 20th century, the late 20th century, a New Testament scholar explained that he had come to confidence in the Bible as the Word of God, just as a young man, by reading the Gospel of John, and in particular, John chapter 20. He already was a literary scholar. He knew how to read literature, and he's reading the Bible as literature. He's reading the Gospel of John, not as a believer, or at least not as one who has a deep belief in the text as the Word of God. Rather, he's reading it as literature. It comes to John 20, and it's the account of the disciples arriving at the empty tomb. And in particular, it's Peter and John. Once again, it's the same two. It's Peter and John. But John tells us that both Peter and John ran to the tomb 
But the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first. So John's, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing the gospel, and he's telling us that he got there first. What difference does it make? Well, this particular scholar reading it said, this is, this is a real indication that these events happened in space and time and history, and that this account is an historical account of that event. Because detail is appearing that isn't important if you're writing this as a screenplay. It's only important if someone's telling you what happened. The same thing is right here in John chapter 13, where you're not just told that one of the disciples motioned to another, and then, and then even just the fact that it was the motioning. It was, Peter, you, this is Peter, because you expect him to do something first. This is Peter. But Peter doesn't ask Jesus. He instructs John to ask Jesus, not as a superior to John, but just because they're, they're so close anyway. The, Peter and James and John together, you know, that, that, one of the three of them is going to have to sort this out. This is going to have to be sorted out. John's the one because he has this privileged position. He's right there beside Jesus as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I, I can almost see it. Well, well, just notice what happens after this as, as we read the text. So that disciple, that would be himself, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. When he had dipped it. So we have bread and wine right there. And wow, you don't have to be very skillful to jump to exactly what this is going to represent. Jesus dips the bread, and he gives it to Simon Iscariot. He just said, the one to whom I give this morsel, having dipped it, he's the one who will betray me. And, and, and he does it, and, there, and he gives it to Simon Iscariot. Now, in, this is Simon, it's Judas Iscariot, Judas uh, conflating his father's name here. But if you, if you look at Judas, it is that last word, Iscariot. Sicari may be part of what's there, uh, an extremist group, one of the Jewish insurrectionist groups uh, of the first century. But it's, it's Judas Iscariot. But wouldn't you think that would be so completely disclosive that you would you know exactly who it is? This, is? this is Judas. He just was given the morsel dipped. He's the betrayer. The other should respond in absolute horror. But, but the passage continues, and it, it's clear that the disciples, they, they still don't understand it all. They were probably incapable of understanding it all. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, so Judas received it, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, 
what you are going to do, do quickly. So you're going to betray me. I know you're going to betray me. You and I both know that you're going to betray me. So what you're going to do, just do it. Satan entered into him. A little footnote here. I get asked a lot regularly questions by pastors and and Christians. They ask things like, should I worry about demon possession? And, uh, and, And here's the good news for Christians. If you are united to Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, you may not be ever possessed by a demon. So, there, there is no demon who can enter into what Christ himself called the strong man's house. You don't have to worry about that. But you do have to worry about the fact that there are those who are not in Christ who can be filled by demons, or in this case, entered into even by Satan. And that's what happened with Judas. So that should tell you immediately that Judas is, is not only not one of the disciples, he has given himself to the devil, and now the devil has entered into him. So he, he is serving the devil. The devil has entered into him. It's as if he's now, indeed, possessed by Satan himself. But then look at verse 28. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. And we just have to be careful here because I I want to be honest. I'd like to think that at this point I would have gotten it. I'd I'd like to think, okay, Jesus said one of you is going to betray me. Can you imagine how the temperature would have gone up in the room? The tension would have been massive. Okay, one of you is going to betray me. Uh, Who is it? You know, Peter motions to John. John asks Jesus, and Jesus says, it's the one to whom I will give the bread dipped. He gives the dipped bread to Judas. And you, know, you would think, okay, now all the dots are connecting. Jesus says he's going to be betrayed. He's now identified the one among them who would betray him. And then he looks to him and says, what you must do, go and do quickly. And then the next thing we're told is that the disciples didn't understand what he had said. Well, in sympathy, they couldn't have understood. They, they wouldn't have understood. We understand because we have the entire flow of, uh, of these events before us. But I'll be honest, I'm troubled in spirit just thinking about this passage. It's a frightening passage to me. It's sweet, it's the sweet Word of God telling us of how Jesus was now humbling Himself even to the cross, even unto death. But it it troubles me thinking about the disciples and what they're thinking. It seems at this point inconceivable to the disciples that Jesus would be betrayed that way by one of their own. It, It seems to them at this point that this must be some kind of betrayal less than what must have been hovering in their imaginations as the betrayal. Even when Jesus says what you must do, do quickly, they just go back to Judas's role as the treasurer of the, of the twelve and just assume this is some kind of financial arrangement that Jesus wants them to go do. They, they don't get it. 
But that also tells you something else, something more important. And that is, they don't feel the urgency of what's about to happen. In other words, if they, it's a relatively small thing that they don't understand what Jesus said to Judas. The bigger thing is, they don't understand what's coming. Arrest, trial, crucifixion. Coming not out there somewhere when his time has not yet come, but coming now because his time has come. So Judas goes out. So receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Luke chapter 22 similarly tells us that at this event, it is now dark. And, and the darkness is a foreboding sign of what is to come. It's one thing to be betrayed in the light of day. It's another thing to be betrayed under cover of darkness. The motif of light and darkness is so central to our lives, let's be frank, but it's so central to Scripture, so central to all literature, but to Scripture in particular, so much that we have the children of light and the children of darkness. But, but here we are told that it is now dark. It's It's night. This uh, foreboding, it's an, ominous, it's an ominous sign of what's, what's happening. Jesus continues speaking to the disciples. And we know that this is a continuing sequence because of the literary structure of the text, because in verse 31 we read, when he had gone out, Jesus said. So this is all one composite and this is going to be a very long passage. As I say, the farewell discourse begins itself at the end of chapter 13. But it's, it's all in this flow. And it's, it's as if the, the time has slowed down a bit because the events are going to be so compressed, we're going to need several chapters to understand ours. It's important for us to see that right now. We're, we're, we're talking about several chapters in which we're only going to be talking about a few hours but those few hours are for us everything. And the disciples don't yet know it, but they're, they're about to know it. They're about to understand it. They, you would think, should know it, but, but they're going to get it. Jesus said in verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So right after Judas leaves, Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But he actually puts it more strongly than that. It's not just to be, it's is. Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. 
Now, what's the theological background to this that the disciples should know? What is it? What what should be kind of coming to their mind? And what scripture? Well, in particular, if we look at Isaiah chapter 49. So back to the great prophet Isaiah. And back to chapter 49. We see similar, similar language. Very early in the chapter in particular. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver, in his quiver, he hid me away. Look at verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Is God glorified in Israel? Yes, but this passage is about the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant. This is a messianic passage, which in the servant, God will be glorified. We now know the servant is the Son, and that's in the Son. The Father is glorified. But the Father also glorifies the Son. It's this reciprocity of glory between the Father and the Son. It will become, and we have to keep saying this because this passage looms so large before us in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus will at length, and so when we turn to John 17, we will look at it in greater length, He speaks of this infinite reciprocity of glory between them. But it's not just the glory in their relationship, it's the glory in their acts of salvation by which the Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son. And the the Son glorifies the Father in the purchase of a people. And the Father brings Himself glory and the entire Trinity glory by the saving acts that He brings about in the Son. And, and as you look at the New Testament passages, it is the Father who gives the, this saved people to His Son, but it's also the Son who presents this saved people to the Father in this reciprocity in which glory glory is the superabundant, infinitely precious, dynamic, that explains more than any other word what is between the Father and the Son. Love, yes, love, yes. But, of course, God's indivisible. And so when we talk about even these words, they're not divisible. But this love is glory, and this glory is love. And it is this this understanding that God brings glory to Himself by saving sinners who had been His enemies and don't deserve anything but wrath. And all that's what's unfolding right now. And, and he says that he is glorified. He's talking about now. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So, Jesus is about to be humiliated. There, there's no word adequate to describe the humiliation that the Son is going to experience. He, he, he who made the world and every single human being in the world and came into the world 
And the world received him not, even if he came into his own. He's now going to be arrested and humiliated. He's going to be interrogated. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. Paul will speak of this, of course, in Philippians chapter 2, in the humility of the Son, who humbled himself even to death, even to death on a cross. But you'll recall what comes immediately after that is, therefore God hath highly, has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So th- there's that reciprocity in, in the act of, of being hu- humbled. Humiliate is not the wrong word for us. Christ brings glory to the Father. Because of His perfect obedience, the Father glorifies the Son. It's, it's, it's all encapsulated right here. He speaks of the disciples, Padia, little children. And, and then he says very sweetly, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Look back to chapter 7 and chapter 8 if you want to see when Jesus said this. But this is, this is where he said to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't go. But he also said, you're going to look for me and you can't find me. Now, in, in John chapter 7, you know, in the, earlier in the Gospel of John, it, it's, it's about just uh, telling the, um, the Jewish people, there's a timeline on my time with you. <laughs> you, you, you. You're going to eventually come looking for me and I will be gone. And where I've gone, you can't go must have been many of the, one of the many things that uh, the disciples heard, and they'll understand it a lot better later than they do now. But Jesus is now saying to them, as I said to the Jews, I'm now saying to you, I'm going where you can't go. I'm not with you long. You're going to look for me, and I'm not going to be found. So Jesus is getting them ready. And of course, this is, again, we're talking about the farewell discourse. This is Jesus preparing his disciples for when he is not with them. And, and they had to have limited imagination as to what that might be because he's with them. He's, but he's speaking about this. And we have these wonderful chapters yet before us in chapters 14 and 15, 16. And then even before we get to the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, we've got these, these marvelous, sweet chapters in which Jesus is going to pour himself out to the disciples to get them ready for when they will look for him and he will not be found because where he has gone, they cannot go. Now, but what does that mean, where I am going, you cannot go? Well, it, it, does it mean proximately in the, in the events of the passion? Is that, is that it? You, you, you can't go to the cross with me? You can't go to the trial with me? Well, that, that proximate reality is there, yes, but it, it's, uh, it's an eschatological and eternal reality as well. He's going to be with the Father and... and, and He's returning to the Father, and in this life, where He's going, they can't go. Just imagine a Christless church, a Jesusless church, we're using the word church because Jesus has already used it. Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
how do you have church without Jesus? How do you have how do you have church without Christ? Here. What would be the point? <laughs> What's the point of being the disciples of an absent Lord? What, the, what sense would that make? It, it makes sense to us, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But because we don't believe we're here with an absent Christ or an absent Jesus. We believe He's here. Uh, we believe He's here in His Spirit. We believe He's here in His Word. We believe we are His body and we are united to Him. We, we believe He's here because He dwells in us and is united to us. And so we don't believe in a Jesusless, Christless church. There couldn't be such a thing. It would be impossible. But even the language I've just used is dependent upon what we know of the church from later developments in the New Testament. I've got to, I've got to lean into Paul here about union with Christ. I've got to lean into the book of Acts about Jesus being present in his church. I've got to, I've got to remember the words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We don't know that yet. I, I just feel terror on behalf of the disciples with Jesus saying, I'm not going to be with you. You're going to look for me and you're not going to be able to find me. Where I'm going, you can't go. You've gone with me just about everywhere. can't go where I'm going. I, I read that text with terror, to be honest. What, what, what does this mean? Jesus knows when he's not with them in this way, bodily, physically present. They will need a love for one another greater than when He is physically present with them. So He leaves them a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Interestingly, some have argued that the Gospel of John requires a less universal love than is found, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment. The first he says is, Love of God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But then Jesus said, the second is like unto it, going back to Leviticus 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, of course, the whole passage that continues in which we ask the question, who is my neighbor? And everyone's our neighbor. But you'll notice this is a, a, a different context because Jesus is talking to the church, effectively talking to the disciples, and, and he's telling them, about love for one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not to love the world, but it does mean, let's be clear, there is a love we share as we are together in Christ that we can't share with anyone who isn't united to Christ. There's a, there is a love for brothers and sisters in Christ, and it, it, it's not that Jesus here is letting the disciples off with a more restrictive requirement. It's a different context, and it's a different love in one sense. This new commandment, and it is interesting when Jesus said this new commandment, because in Jewish language, 
there really couldn't be anything more seismic than this. And again, because so much is going on in this passage here in these, these later chapters of John, we, we read right past that when you go, yeah, 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 yeah. A new commandment? Who gets to give a commandment? Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus acted as if he were God in expanding the command internally. It's not enough. You've heard it said. You shall not commit murder, but I say unto you that if you have hatred in your heart towards another, then you have committed murder. In other words, so Jesus was clearly speaking as if he were the author of those commandments, that is, with, with the Father. So, but God alone commands in this sense and, and can say, here's a new commandment. But now Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. So in one sense, you see, this is an even more head-on declaration of his deity. He's not just explaining and expanding the meaning of the Ten Commandments. He's now saying, you know, there are some who might accuse me of actually offering a new commandment. I'm doing that right now. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. It's a love command. Fascinating. So this new commandment that Christ gives the church is a love commandment. Now, the thing about a commandment is it is non-negotiable. So, and it's universally applicable. So there are to be no contexts in which this commandment does not apply. There is no safe space, no zone of neutrality in which a divine command does not apply. So this divine command applies to those to whom it applies in all places, in all times, forever. The new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as I... You know, it's interesting when Jesus goes back to Luke chapter, Leviticus, excuse me, chapter 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that's the second greatest of the commandments, right after love of God. And then he says, um, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the, 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 this is the unifying principle to understand everything else in Scripture is love of God and love of neighbor. And, uh, and then immediately... You know, the disciples want to know, well, who's my neighbor? You know, just how expansively do I have to, to apply this? And um, Jesus, of course, most famously in the Gospel of Luke, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's, there's no one who isn't our neighbor. But there are those who are not our brother. And there are those who are not our sister. The, the, the love we owe to a brother or sister in Christ is the love just as I have loved you. That's an astounding love. And again, this is just John 13. So that love is about to be defined. But it's the most incredible command to Christ's church. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us. So the operational principle of the Christian church is to be love. 
Love of God, yes. Love of neighbor, yes. Externally, love of neighbor. Internally, love of brother and sister with a love that is just as Christ loves his own. This transforms the church and the love of the church. The church is love. It transforms our understanding of the hierarchy of love, which is to say we are to love the entire world, just as, in a very real sense, God loves the whole world. You know, the Baptist faith and message speaks of this, of this fatherhood of God, in the same way, analogously speaking of God's love, saying that in creation, I'm paraphrasing it here, God is love of all the creatures He has, God is the father of all the creatures He has made, and He's benevolent towards them all, it causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. But he is properly father to those who know him through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a, there's a, there's a sense in which God's father to everybody, but in, in a creation sense, but in a redemption sense, he's father in the sense of greatest significance to those who are of the Son. Well, there's a love that we are supposed to have for the entire world. And that's what drives us into the world, love of God and love of neighbor. This is why Jesus sends us into the world. We want to see lost people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We want to see, we want to see the right things happen in the communities around us. We want to love our neighbor, and that can, can be quickly translated into loving deeds. That's why where you find Christianity, you find charitable works. But the love inside the church is different. And Jesus himself says it so. And, and that difference is not just with an internal significance, it also has an external significance, which is where we end this morning. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it, there's the internal reality of the church with this special love that in Christ we have one for the other, but it also has external significance because when people try to say, what it, who are they, this church? What, 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 is, what are they about? Jesus says, they'll know you as mine when you love one another. In fact, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's an amazing, amazing passage. And the pace only quickens as we move forward. It's been good for my soul, and I'm just thankful to be able to walk through this with you, these verses in, Matthew, in John chapter 13, because... We tend to rush over this to get to the cross and the empty tomb. But Jesus didn't. And with him, the disciples didn't. And we shouldn't. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful for everything you have given us today, just in these few verses. Father, we pray that all that we have learned and heard of you will be used by the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, we pray to see this very love of which Christ commanded. 
We pray to see it amongst ourselves and may the world see it in us. And it will be to your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.